Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We have some breaking news for you on a drug the president has been touting as a possible miracle treatment for coronavirus. It turns out one brand new study shows that hydroxychloroquine might not be miraculous at all and in some cases could actually increase the chances of a coronavirus patient dying. We'll hit those details with Dr. Sanjay Gupta shortly. But first, right now, the death toll in the United States from coronavirus is nearly nearing 44,000. At this time last week, there were about 25,000 deaths in the U.S. And despite that growing death toll, there is a deepening divide in the U.S. as some states begin to scale back measures in an effort to ease some of the economic pain of the pandemic. You will soon be able to go to the gym in Georgia or to the beach or a department store in South Carolina. In Colorado, you will soon be able to visit a salon and visit the vast majority of businesses in Tennessee. The White House suggested to states that in order to reopen, there must be a decline in the number of new cases reported each day for 14 days straight. Though this is just a suggestion to states, not an order. But as you can see in these graphs, showing the new cases reported each day in those four states we mentioned, not one of them has met that White House standard as of now. CNN's Erica Hill now reports as governors make these moves, some mayors in those states are considering legal action to try to stop the reopening, at least right now. I will continue to use my voice to encourage people to exercise common sense, listen to the science and stay home. We are not out of the woods. Georgia's plan to reopen certain businesses this Friday, taking local leaders by surprise. It's like telling your quarterback, we don't have helmet, a helmet for you. We don't have pads, uh, but get out there on the field and just try not to get sacked. Hairdressers, tattoo parlors, you're less than six feet apart in all of those interactions. Many of these things actually are completely counter to some of the measures of, of mitigation that we've really been trying to deploy. In South Carolina, beaches and some retail stores are open today, though some coastal communities, including Myrtle Beach, say their shores are closed. Do I go back to work to try and make money and risk getting sick or do I stay home and go broke? Realtors, attorneys and construction workers now cleared in Vermont, though limited to two employees at a time, while New Jersey is opening a new field hospital today. Florida's governor planning his next step as cases there remain steady. Neighboring Georgia seeing an uptick, along with Kentucky, Illinois, Massachusetts, Maryland, and California. Progress is being made. You are bending the curve. You're beginning to flatten the curve, but it is still nonetheless rising. Hospitalizations, ICU admissions, and intubations are down in New York, where the governor says the state will reopen on a regional basis. We operate as one state, but we also have to understand variations and 
you do want to get this economy open as soon as possible. Data will be the driving force for those decisions, much of it related to testing. As experts advise, millions of tests will need to be performed each week to safely reopen the economy. The FDA approving an at-home swab test for emergency use. It would then be mailed to a lab. More than 38 million students will likely not return to school this year. The digital divide remains a major hurdle for distance learning. California announcing private companies are donating 70,000 devices to help bridge the gap. And as the country records more than 42,000 deaths, a sobering reminder of the true toll. Skylar Herbert, the daughter of first responders in Detroit, died after two weeks on a ventilator. This is a hurtful feeling that I don't want any other family to have their experience. Skylar was five years old. Detroit first responders, of course, of course, have been especially hard hit by the virus. Uh, Skyler's mother's a police officer, her father, a firefighter, Jake. And just one other note from here in New York, we talk so much about what has changed, what is being canceled. The mayor noting that when New York is ready, one of the first things they plan to do is hold a ticker tape parade for the health care workers who, in the words of the mayor, saved us. He said it will also be a sign of the rebirth of this city. Having a parade in New York City is one of the stupidest ideas I've ever heard. Erica Hill, thank you so much. Uh, Joining me now is the Democratic mayor. (laughs) I hear you, but still. Uh, Joining me now is the Democratic mayor of Savannah, Georgia, uh, Van Johnson. Uh, uh, Mayor Johnson, what was your reaction to uh, Georgia Governor Kemp's announcement yesterday afternoon? Um, I was completely blindsided, um, extremely disappointed, um, very, very confused, um, and and really disturbed um, at the the fact that an announcement will be made at this point, this juncture, we had not checked any of the boxes on the White House's playbook to gradually reopen uh, states, and yet we're, you know, really reopening our cities. Beyond that, um, the governor has a stay-at-home order that extends to April the 30th, yet we're opening some businesses on the 24th and opening other businesses on the 27th. So Savannah is one of the biggest cities in the state of Georgia. He didn't talk to you before he made this announcement? I haven't spoken with the governor since this began. And I've, and uh, I've the governor says the uh, governors from across the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the governor says uh, that this order is statewide and it cannot be overturned. Uh, are you going to try to fight it or are you going along with it? What is the reaction of, of Savannah? Well, obviously, again, we're very disappointed because um, we were not asked here on the ground. Um, we're going to explore all of our options. Um, but I've ex- told our citizens this morning, um, they are the governors and they are the mayors of their own homes. They get to call the shots. And certainly they know that science is there, that they need to make sure they're doing the things that are necessary to keep them safe. We are not safe here in this community yet, and these businesses should not be open. I've also appealed to our local businesses. They know that it's not safe to open. Don't put themselves, don't put their employees, and don't put their customers uh, at risk. So, Mr. Mayor, there's obviously a lot of economic pain and desperation out there. I'm sure you're seeing it in Savannah. Um, What are you hearing from Savannah residents, Savannah business owners? Uh, What are they telling you? Are they ready to reopen? Do they want to reopen? 
I've heard from many businesses, Jake, all over our great community. And again, they're in pain. They're hurting. Um, this has been a massive, massive um, um, loss of opportunity for them. But I've heard them overwhelmingly say they want to do it when it's safe. They don't want to put their employees at risk. They don't want to put their customers at risk. Um, again, but they're confused by it all because on the other end of it, we have a stay-at-home order until April the 30th, yet they're being allowed to open on the 24th and the 27th. So which order are you following? The stay-at-home order that's in place or the order that's saying you can open on the 24th or the 27th? People are confused all over the place, and um, you know that's not a good thing for us in this time. We need to be able to speak with a very clear voice. So you say most of the people uh, that you talk to in the community of Savannah uh, – are, are want to stay in the situation you're in. What do you say to, to those who are in the minority, uh, according to you, that talk to you about this, who are, who are struggling financially and say, look, I need to get back to work. I can't pay my rent. I can't put food on my table. You need to understand. What, what do you say to them? And again, I'm very, very sensitive to our businesses here. Um, they put their life's work into building um, something that is done well up until this point. Um, what I've told them is this, is that, um, frankly, uh, this is a national emergency. Um, you could be open all day long, but the fact is, if people are not coming, you're not going to do well either. We would rather you open when it's safe. Um, we don't want someone to be victimized by coming into your place of business, uh, being infected in your place of business, or putting your business at a, a situation where you're closed um, for an extended period of time due to an outbreak in your business. So I think people get that. They understand that. These are unusual and extraordinary times. And I think people generally want to do the right thing. I think generally across this city, and I, from what I've heard from across the state, um, People want to open, but they want to open when it's safe. They don't want to just open for the sake of opening. Um, in this case, people are more important than economics. So let me just ask you about your, your personal decisions, if you don't mind my asking. I mean, I'm sure that you go to the gym. I'm sure that you go to restaurants. I'm sure uh, you've, you've been to the movies. Uh, when do you plan to start doing that uh, are you going to take advantage of the governor lifting the restrictions or are you going to wait? What, what, what's your plan? Well, it, it personally, um, you can tell by my physique that I'm in the gym every single day. Um, but the reality is I'm not going anywhere until it's safe. And I have asked the city of Savannah that we're not going to resume normal business operations until it's safe for our employees and safe for our citizens. Um, you know, I'm doing the takeout thing. I'm learning how to cook. Um, we have to be able to live in those types of things. And, and especially when you look at hair salons and beauty shops, massage parlors and tattoos, um, uh, tattoo parlors. There is no way to maintain social distancing um, in those cases. And just to me, I think it's really a bad decision. It's not based on science. We have the 14th highest infection rate in the country and yet the seventh lowest testing rate. Um, we have to do better here in Georgia if we're expecting to reopen safely. Mayor Van Johnson, God bless you. Thank you so much. Uh, and God bless the citizens of Savannah. We'll be thinking about you. Thank you. Keep us in your prayers. Thank you so much. Could you have been exposed to coronavirus and not even known it? One doctor, our doctor, Sanjay Gupta, he himself took a new antibody test to find that out, his experience and the results of that next. Plus, 
We're watching Capitol Hill, where the Senate is about to vote on a deal for more funding desperately needed for small business loans. Treasury Stay with Secretary us. Mnuchin, Chief of Staff Meadows. Welcome back. It's an unproven drug often touted by President Trump as a possible treatment for coronavirus. What do you have to lose? Take it. I really think they should take it. Hydroxychloroquine. Try it. Hydroxychloroquine, which I think, as you know, it's a great malaria drug. It's worked unbelievably. What do you have to lose, President Trump asked? Well, today, a new Veterans Health Administration study found no medical benefit to hydroxychloroquine when it comes to coronavirus patients and that it could actually be harming patients who take it. Joining me now is CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, you know, this is crappy news. We all want something to work. Take us through this study. Right. Yeah, no, no doubt. We, we're all looking for some sort of therapy, and hydroxychloroquine is the one that's been getting a lot of attention. Uh, this, is a, this is a study of some 368 patients. Still a small study, Jake. We're going to get larger data studies, so we have to take all of these studies with a little bit of a grain of salt. This one was not peer-reviewed. It was not randomized, meaning patients weren't put in one group versus the other but in some random fashion. But nevertheless, exactly what you said, Jake, the patients who in this study got hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, that's the z pack the antibiotic, uh, this study, they did worse. They had a close to a 22% death rate as compared to the patients who didn't get those medications who had about an 11.4% death rate. So um, it, it, it doesn't look very promising. You know, uh, there was, this is a, a, another study among a drumbeat of studies now. Again, all of them pretty small. We, we're still waiting for the larger studies. But if you look at France, you look at Brazil, you look at Sweden, you're hearing similar things. In France, they said they found a dose that was too toxic. It was actually causing heart arrhythmias. In Sweden, they gave guidance to all the nation's hospitals to stop administering this medication outside of a clinical trial. So, um, you know, I think you framed it perfectly. We all want something that works. Uh, there was, there's obviously been a lot of enthusiasm around this particular one, but so far, the results have not been uh, that impressive at all, Jake. Let's talk about this study of antibody testing out of Los Angeles County. It found the true number of coronavirus cases could be actually 55 times higher than traditional testing shows. In L.A. County, the study found 4.1 percent of adults are or have been infected. Uh, it seems remarkable. What does it mean? Well, it, it's interesting. And this is the second. So there was a Stanford study that sort of showed the same thing. They had a thousand patients confirmed up there and showed that it could be actually as many as 80,000 people who had been exposed to the virus and, and similar sort of ratio here, you know, 40 times as many patients that it was actually exposed versus those were confirmed. It means two things. Uh, it's, it's like most things, Jake. Uh, there's some bad news and good news in this. The bad news is uh, that this virus has seemingly spread even more than we have thought. We've suspected this for some time. It's a contagious virus, and we haven't been testing adequately. So now we're starting to get a glimpse of just how far this has spread. But at the same time, Jake, uh, many of those people who were subsequently you know, thought to have been exposed to this either had no symptoms or they had minimal symptoms, which in part is, is good news because that brings down the overall fatality ratio. Fatality ratio is the number of people who've died over the number of people who've had these confirmed infections. If there are more people who've had the infections, then that's going to bring down the fatality ratio. We still don't know what it is. 
It seems to be variable country to country, even region of country to other regions of country. But if there's a lot of people out there who aren't getting sick from this, it means it's widespread, but not as deadly uh, as if the, with the few confirmed infections that we have. And Sanjay, you got an antibody test. Tell us about it. Yeah, so, you know, uh, this, was, this was an interesting process. I mean, and healthcare workers are starting to get these tests because, you know, they're taking care of patients. I wanted to see it firsthand, and there's been so many questions about this, Jake. You and I have talked about it. I decided to chronicle the experience as well and really talk to the people who are creating these tests to better understand it myself. Take a look. I'm going to put a tight squeeze on you over here, okay? There are two different tests that we are all becoming familiar with. A diagnostic test that searches for the genetic markers of the coronavirus, and this one that tests for antibodies. I'm gonna give you a cold wipe. First thing you'll notice is that the antibody test requires blood. For me, it was just a poke. And just like that, we're all done. But then look at all the steps that take place after that. My blood is taken down to the lab and then spun down in a centrifuge. You're looking at my serum. That's the clear part that might contain antibodies if I have been previously exposed. The way to find that out is fascinating. Just take some of my serum and put it in the same test tube as the virus and see what happens. If you have antibodies against that, they're going to bind and we're going to be able to detect that. Dr. John Roback is the medical director of the blood bank at Emory University Hospital in Atlanta, where I practice as a neurosurgeon. I was able to get this test because I'm still working as a doctor at Emory and healthcare workers are considered to be at high risk for COVID-19. Now, this particular test, approved under FDA emergency authorization at Emory, was developed by Roback and his colleagues. Right now, they test up to 300 people a day. By mid-June, they expect to be processing thousands a day. It's far more sophisticated than the tests you may have heard of recently. What do you make of these at-home tests for antibodies? I don't think that they can achieve the sorts of performance characteristics we can, we can with these tests that we have in our clinical laboratory. We have a lot better control over the testing conditions, over the sample that was collected. Here's what happens in your body when you're infected. The blue line, that's how long the virus typically lives inside of you. Take a look at the green line. Early on... IgM antibodies appear, but they disappear shortly after. And then the red line, that's the IgG antibody. That's the one that appears after the infection is cleared and might provide immunity. For just how long, how strong, that we don't know yet. We do know that for other coronaviruses, like SARS, antibodies lasted two to three years. And MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, had antibody presence of about three years. But with this new coronavirus, it's still too early to tell. And in order to answer the question, researchers are going to focus on this term, neutralizing activity. You see, it doesn't necessarily matter how many antibodies you have. It only matters how well they work at keeping the virus from entering a human cell. And that can vary from person to person. It's fascinating that not everybody that has high levels of antibodies on the test we're doing now actually have very much neutralizing activity that those antibodies might still be helping. It, you know, causes us to pause a little bit before we, you know, just um, categorically say if you have high antibodies, you're immune. What is the real value of having the test? 
I think if you have, if you're positive on this test, it indicates you've been exposed. That can give you a little bit of peace of mind, I think, that, you know, that, you know, the, the cough I had two weeks ago, that was really COVID-19. It could indicate that, you know, some of your close contacts should be tested. But perhaps most importantly, Dr. Roback told me something I hadn't really considered before, that if you test positive for the antibodies, that means you've dealt with this infection and you beat it. And chances are that if you're exposed to it again, you'll beat it again. As for me, that part is still an open question mark. I tested negative. Sanjay, what are your big takeaways after ongoing this antibody test? I, I was trying to understand the justification right now. Everyone says you get the antibody test to find out if essentially you're immune to this. We can't say that yet. Those studies still need to be done. Uh, so is there any merit in really getting this test done? And I think it was that last thing that really sort of struck me. If you do have antibodies, you may not have even known that you uh, had the infection or maybe you had some cold-like symptoms earlier. Uh, the fact that you beat it already, even if you're not immune to it, means that if you are exposed to it again, you could beat it again. I think that was the point he was making. I think that, you know, it's a, it's a peace of mind, Jake, at this point. Hopefully we get the studies proving you have immunity, but, but in the meantime, there may still be some merit. Yeah, and let this caution people at home. We're, you go with the FDA-approved test. There's a lot of junky tests out there. Make sure there I think there are four that are FDA-approved. Sanjay, before you go, I want to ask you, uh, your governor, uh, Governor Kemp of Georgia, uh, is starting to lift uh, restrictions uh, and, and in Georgia, e- even though Georgia has not met the guidelines that President Trump and the White House have put out of 14 days uh, decline uh, of new coronavirus uh, cases. You think this is a public health mistake, yes? This is a public health mistake. I, I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, look, I think it's, it's, uh, it's reasonable to say uh, this is a, a tough call for the governor because I'm sure he has a lot of pressure on him, but this is not a tough call from a public health standpoint at all. And, you know, the more I think about it, Jake, the more I realize this is uh, almost all risk and no reward because even, for the, even if you do open things up, you know, you, you talk to people around here, Jake. I live here. You talk to people, not just within the healthcare community, but people are going to be very understandably nervous about going to these places. Has that doorknob been sterilized? Is the person who's about to give me a haircut, uh, have they been tested? Has this building been uh, disinfected in some way? What about the ventilation? Uh, if I sit at a restaurant, I'm, I'm there for over an hour. That's prolonged contact with people. It's, it, you know, I'm not trying to alarm people, but how do you justify potentially putting people at risk without uh, truly getting the rewards from from reopening businesses. I I don't think you do. Well, I hope it's not a mistake, but I certainly understand your concerns. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, uh, thank you so much. Uh, Be sure to tune in for a special CNN Global Town Hall hosted by Dr. Gupta and Anderson Cooper. Uh, Their guests this evening, Grammy Award winner Alicia Keys, who has a special surprise. That's this Thursday night. I'm sorry, it's not tonight. It's Thursday night at 8 p.m. right here on CNN. Thursday night. President Trump is right now scheduled to meet with New York Governor Andrew Cuomo at the White House. What we know about their conversation, that's next. Stay with us. Welcome back. The president is trying now to depict concerns about coronavirus testing as, in his view, mostly partisan. There's bipartisan outcry still today that there's not enough testing. Why do you think it's a personal attack on you? Well, it's not uh, bipartisan. It's mostly partisan. The reason that the Democrats and some others, maybe because they don't know, 
They want maximum because they want to be able to criticize. Because it's almost impossible to get to the maximum number, and yet we've been able to do it already. It's just inaccurate in so many different ways. Uh, to start with, I don't know of anyone advocating that every single American needs to be repeatedly tested over and over, which would theoretically be the ma- maximum. But honestly, stepping back, to have only 4 million completed tests in a country of 328 million at this point in the pandemic, according to health experts, that's woefully inadequate at the very least. Those who have expressed concerns about inadequate tests and supplies and labs include Republican Senate Health Committee Chairman Senator Lamar Alexander, Trump's former FDA director, Scott Gottlieb, Republican governors DeWine of Ohio, Hogan of Maryland, Baker of Massachusetts, and Ricketts of Nebraska, who said this just a few weeks ago. There's no governor in the country that feels like they've got enough testing. But because President Trump seems to want to shirk responsibility for any mishandling of this crisis, he depicts concerns that health officials in his own administration share as partisan. They are not. CNN's Caitlin Collins picks this story up from the White House. Good morning, everyone. This hour, President Trump will sit down with New York Governor Andrew Cuomo in the Oval Office. I have to get to Washington. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Cuomo is one of several governors who has said ramping up testing is critical to reopening the country and that the federal government needs to help, a topic he says will be front and center in his sit-down with the president. Uh, Testing. And what does testing mean and how do we do it and how can the federal government work in partnership with the states? The meeting comes amid a broader battle between the White House and governors who say there aren't enough tests or supplies to conduct them. Trump has dismissed governors who say they're scrambling to get the materials they need. And he didn't explain why Maryland's Republican governor had to get half a million tests from South Korea if there are enough in the U.S., like he says. I don't know what the governor of Maryland, we talked to him today, he didn't bring that up today. I don't think he needed to go to South Korea. I think he needed to get a little knowledge would have been helpful. Despite the concerns over testing, other governors are moving ahead with reopening their states including Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, who announced one of the most aggressive timelines in the country. Well, I can tell you, I don't give a damn about politics right now. We have information here from... Some of the governors, like in South Carolina, aren't meeting some of the criteria laid out by the White House for reopening. Each of the governors can decide for themselves whether they've reached specific guidelines in specific areas. As he faces criticism over his slow response to the coronavirus, President Trump announced in a late-night tweet that he was halting all immigration to the U.S. The announcement came with few details about its size or scope, and sources tell CNN the executive order he plans to sign was still being drafted when Trump tweeted. Given that immigration has largely been brought to a standstill by the coronavirus, critics claim it's a presidential distraction. I think the president ought to stop these diversions. What we really need is a focus on testing, a focus on contact tracing, so that we can open up again. Now, Jake, there are obviously questions about if the president's motivations behind that announcement last night were political, given the fact that we still don't have details on what that's going to look like. The president still has not signed that executive order, and his attorneys are still working on it today, signing that it wasn't fully ready to be implemented yet. Though I do want to note that the president's meeting with Governor Cuomo, which was scheduled to start at 4 p.m., has already ended 
According to the White House, though, they're not expecting to tell us exactly what went on in that meeting until we do see the president here at the briefing shortly. And Caitlin, the president seems to be arguing that it's time in this pandemic to start opening up the country, and yet the pandemic is so serious, all immigration needs to end. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, and his argument for why he needs to have this, which is, you know, really only been spelled out to us on Twitter, but we've been speaking with sources who've been speaking with the president and working on this, basically say that his argument seems to be that these jobs, once they do return, he wants to preserve them for American workers, though what we're expecting based on what we've been hearing is that there are going to be some pretty broad exemptions to this. So the questions of just how effective it's going to be are a whole nother matter, because we should note right now there aren't a lot of visas being processed anyway. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House, thanks so much. We expect the U.S. Senate to vote this hour on a new round of emergency financial relief. Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi are already touting the bill as a big win for Democrats who wanted the deal to go beyond funding for small business loans. The bill now includes $321 billion for small business loans and, in addition, $50 billion for disaster recovery loans, $75 billion for hospitals, $25 billion for coronavirus testing, and add another $2 billion for salaries and expenses from the Small Business Administration. Together, this relief package now tops $480 billion. Let's bring in CNN business anchor uh, Julia Chatterley. And Julia, the $321 billion for small businesses uh, has money designated for small businesses in rural areas, uh, small businesses without existing accounts with banks and other lenders. But the process to determine who is who is not ironed out yet. Might that mean more delays? There's good and bad in this, and that's certainly the fear at this moment, Jake. What it looks like is that the cash is going to be allocated based on size of bank. The assumption being, if you're a small bank, you'll get access to some of the smaller businesses. So far, so good. Except the program to upload the applications doesn't recognize banks based on size. So either that's going to have to be updated, and that could mean delays, or there'll be a window to get loans in from different size banks. I've had small businesses coming to me and saying, hey, I, I've got an application in with a big bank. Does that mean I'm going to be delayed here? And that's potentially the risk. There's nothing simple about this process, Jake. And Julia, with the oil markets crashing today, President Trump directed his administration to come up with a plan to try to save American jobs related to the energy sector. Does it sound as though a bailout might be in the works for the oil industry? Bailouts or borrowing? I spoke to the CEO of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce today, and he was really clear. He said, look, the big oil companies, they're not going to need money. But for the smaller businesses, particularly in the shale sector, they're going to need emergency lending. They need access to what we've just been talking about, the Paycheck Protection Scheme. I looked at the numbers. The oil and gas sector just took 1% of the money available last time. So we'll be looking for a rise in the money coming around. But remember, this sector supports 10 million jobs. It's way bigger than just oil and gas names and small businesses here. There are some serious questions about the the health and safety of workers who go to work in this environment. As businesses start to reopen in some areas, uh, President Trump was asked yesterday and he said he didn't have uh, a legal opinion. The White House didn't have an, uh, an opinion on the liability risk for these businesses. This is a growing concern for businesses who worry they'll be sued and for people uh, who don't want to go back to work and then get sick and possibly die. All of the above. Imagine being a gym in Georgia at this moment. I've spoken to a few lawyers today 
and they said it comes down to reasonable precautions. It's something that the grocery sector has been dealing with now for weeks. Three suggestions they've got. The first, you follow the most stringent as a business of the guidelines from the state or from the CDC guidelines, and you keep following those because they're evolving as the virus does. Two, a sign on the door. As a customer, you enter at your own risk. It's not foolproof, but it's something. And the second thing is talk to your insurance provider. But, but very quickly, Jake, for customers here, in the end, you're at your own risk. So you have to make good decisions, first and foremost. All right, we're going to talk more about the, the OSHA deal here uh, in, in coming days, Julio, um, yeah, because there's are. still some serious questions I have about about employees. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Uh, many schools across the country are closed for the rest of the year, but a huge number of students are not logging on for these online classes. I'm going to talk to the head of the nation's second largest school system about the challenges facing students and teachers there in Los Angeles. That's next. Stay with us. It's been about six weeks since schools in Los Angeles County were closed. And while district officials are trying to make sure every student has Internet access and the devices needed to do their schoolwork, thousands of high school students are simply not logging on for a variety of reasons. We're joined now by Austin Butner. He's the superintendent of the Los Angeles Unified School District, which is the second largest in uh, the nation. Superintendent Butner, thanks so much for joining us earlier this month. You said about 15,000 high school students out of more than 100,000, about so that's about 13%, had no online contact with teachers since schools closed. Why is that, and what have you done about it? Sure, let, let's uh, jump ahead just a couple of weeks. We've reduced that number to a bit less than 3,000. But the context would be we didn't start from a position of strength. There's been much public conversation over years now about adequacy or lack thereof in public education funding, where a class size is too big, or we have libraries without librarians. And one of the other uh, intended or unintended consequences of inadequate funding from the state is a lack of investment in the digital tools. So we started not from a position of strength, but we felt we had to connect every child. We're north of 98% high schools now, as I said, out of 120,000 high school students, we're still working to collect the last, connect the last uh, couple thousand. How many students are, are connected, logging in every day of the, of the more than 100,000 students you have? So we, uh, if you look at balance between weekly, daily, uh, about 98% every week, uh, daily would be close to 70%. But let's be careful that to not look at that versus attendance, because logging in doesn't necessarily mean a student's working, and the converse if a student's reading a book or working on a writing assignment, they may not be logged in. So we're looking at a bunch of more complex measures, and the transition to online is more complex than that. What we're looking to do is measure engagement, not just is a student logged on, because that's where it starts. It's more complex than that. Yeah, and it is complicated, I know, just from, from having kids myself. I mean, there's a dilemma that the teachers and, and superintendents and principals have, which is uh, you don't want to be too tough. This is very, very difficult online learning. It's very, very challenging, especially uh, for younger kids, especially for kids who already have learning challenges. But by the same token, you don't want it to be a joke. You don't want it to be nothing. And it's a very difficult line to walk. 
Well, our, our educators do an extraordinary job, but the transition to online, so much of the history uh, or the examples one would use have real selection bias, affluent communities, schools that are well endowed with tons of investment in training and the tools, and students with a demonstrated aptitude to work independently, which is online or distant learning. Public schools having their DNA to serve every child, and that's our goal if you think about what newspapers went through when they used to have a captive audience at the kitchen table and transition online, certain those challenges exist for public education where we had assumed a child present at school, attending school, was engaged in learning. Not always the case, but we did have a captive audience. We now go to a home environment where everybody's lives, our students and their families, our educators and their families have been turned upside down. Engagement is the goal, and we're going to work towards that. We've got to learn different ways to make sure students are engaged and keep them engaged. And what's the biggest challenge to get all these kids, tens of thousands, to log on, to pay attention, to do their homework? Uh, I imagine there are some kids that don't have a place to do schoolwork, in addition to obviously the ones uh, that might not have Wi-Fi or might not uh, have computers, even though I know you've worked to solve that. What's What's the toughest thing you're facing? I'd say you uh, touch on it there, Jake. We serve a community with great needs. More than 80% of the families that we serve live in poverty. They were struggling. Many of those families were struggling to get by even before uh, this pandemic hit. It's only been made worse. We see that every day we're providing almost 600,000 meals a day to students and families in our community. So the needs are real, the struggle is real, and engaging a student, keeping them learning is only part of the struggle. We have to connect it to the safety net for all families. We have a mental health hotline to try to keep our students whole and connected and recognize it is this delicate balance right now because families are under a lot of pressure. Uh, You talk about it a lot and well chronicle it on your show. Education is one part of the picture, and we have to find ways to keep students engaged and learning as best they can, and we can help them in this environment. A very tough, t- very tough task uh, for you and all the teachers, Los Angeles County. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Superintendent Butner. We, we wish you the best. Stay in touch. Coming up next, North Korea's Kim Jong-un, believed to be in grave condition, a source tells CNN what we know about his health and who might succeed him. That's next. In our world lead today, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is in grave danger after undergoing surgery, according to a U.S. official. Questions about Kim's health were raised after he missed the celebration of his grandfather's birthday on April 15th. He has not been seen publicly since April 11th. CNN's Jim Shudo, who broke this story internationally, joins me now. And Jim, gathering intelligence out of North Korea, not an easy task. What is the White House? What are your sources saying? No question. The blackest of black boxes. That said, the U.S., is monitoring intelligence that Kim's health may be in grave danger following a surgery, uh, multiple officials telling us right now, coupled with uh, other indicators. As you mentioned, Jake, him missing uh, that very public high-profile ceremony honoring his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, some six days ago. Another U.S. official telling CNN that Kim is, quote, definitely unwell, though still believed to be involved in day-to-day decisions. The National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, acknowledged in public this morning that the White House is following these reports on Kim's health very closely. 
You know, we're watching the reports closely, and uh, what we'll have to see is uh, everyone here knows the uh, the North Koreans are parsimonious with the information that they put out about many things, especially when it comes to their leaders, and so we'll uh, we'll keep a close eye on it. So given those difficulties of getting intelligence out of North Korea, U.S. officials taking it seriously enough that they have reached out to North Korea experts uh, to, to discuss questions such as the possibility of succession, who would, who would succeed Kim if he were not able to maintain leadership there. And that's another question that Robert O'Brien addressed in public this morning as well, Jake. Do we know who a successor might be? So, so, uh, again, this is always speculation with the hermit kingdom, but but Kim Yo-jong, his sister, uh, she has played a very public role uh, of late, uh, including appearing in public during the South Korean Olympics, but also, uh, crucially, Jake, Notice that she appeared at one of the Trump-Kim summits in Singapore. Uh, that public role, uh, they believe, U.S. officials, North Korea experts believe, uh, in conjunction with increasing power for her. But again, as with everything in this country, you, you really don't know until it happens. But it is something that U.S. officials follow very closely, this key question of succession. All right, Jim Shido, thank you so much. Appreciate it. More in our worldly today. Chile will be issuing digital immunity cards to people who have had coronavirus and fully recovered to help be able to identify those who theoretically no longer pose a risk to others. The Netherlands will extend its lockdown for most businesses until May 20th, and all large events will be banned until at least September 1st. Children will begin to return to school in waves beginning May 11th. After six weeks in total lockdown, Spain is finally letting children under the age of 14 leave their houses for the first time, but only to run errands with their parents, not to play. Death tolls in England and Wales appear to be significantly higher, 41% higher, than what has been reported by the government. This is according to data released by the Office of National Statistics, studying data from the start of the pandemic until April 10th. Let's talk about that story with CNN's Bianca Nobilo, who joins me now from the UK. Bianca, along with the discrepancy in numbers, a significant one, there's also a concern in the UK about shortages of PPE, personal protective equipment. Yes, we've had another jump in the death statistics today in the United Kingdom, and that's just the official death toll of around 850 people. That's up from around 400 and 500 the two days prior. Now, the tragedy of that becomes even more difficult to bear when we consider that new data from the Office of National Statistics. Now, the difference in the data is the Office of National Statistics is incorporating care home deaths and deaths in the community. And when you factor that in, it looks like the death toll in Britain could actually be around 41% higher than what we've been told by the government. This had long been a concern because those in care homes are, of course, the most vulnerable to this. They are the oldest and often have other comorbidities. Now, all of that being said, there still remains a problem with personal protection equipment in the United Kingdom. The government say they maintain there is enough. They say margins might be tight, but there is sufficient PPE. That is not the story I hear from the front line, Jake. In fact, the leader of the main opposition party in the United Kingdom has said the same. There is a big discrepancy between what the government is saying and what doctors and nurses are saying. They are having to feel pressured to perform their duties without the requisite 
it PPE. And also, Jake, I've been learning today that there's another issue because women actually don't fit the PPE in the same way as men. Even though 75% of our health service are actually women, the PPE equipment doesn't fit them as well. So that's another issue just compounding the problems that healthcare workers are experiencing on the front line here, Jake. All right, Bianca Nabilo uh, in the UK, thank you so much. Uh, finally, today in our money lead, uh, the economy is a disaster for so many people with so much pain. But there are some companies benefiting. Netflix has far exceeded its growth expectation. The company added an astonishing 16 million new subscribers last month alone. That's over twice what had been predicted. The pandemic is obviously forcing people to stay home and to tune in, binging on hits such as Tiger King or Love is Blind or Ozark. Netflix now has 183 million subscribers worldwide. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 